This episode of New Politics was released on the 3rd of February, 2024, and produced on the land of the Wongal and Wadjuk people. Welcome to New Politics and a big welcome to 2024. In this episode, the Labor government finally sees the light and makes adjustments to Stage 3 tax cuts. And Scott Morrison is leaving federal politics. Is it too soon or is it goodbye to the worst Prime Minister in history? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. I'm back, bitches. It's going to be another big year in politics and we are now into our seventh year, which is quite an achievement. The median longevity of a podcast is one episode. That's it. Most podcasts just do the one episode and decide that they're not up to it. And we're almost up to 200 episodes. So that's all pretty good. We've got 10,000 regular listeners and a big thank you to all of you. We've published four books with more to come. We've had over a million downloads during this time and we're in the top 10 of podcasts on Australian politics, news and commentary. And it's good to see all of this growing at a time when the mainstream media is failing so badly. But don't keep all of this to yourself. Tell your friends about us, spread the news about new politics and you can support us through Patreon and Substack or at newpolitics.com.au and all paid subscribers do receive a free PDF copy of all of our books and as we keep saying, it's hard to think of a better way to support independent journalism. I agree with everything you say. It's important that smaller media voices are heard. One of our philosophies is trying to talk about the things that the mainstream media plays down or ignores, and they ignore it for many reasons. Not all of them are necessarily nefarious, but I think it's important that voices such as ours are heard and and supported, and we appreciate every bit of support we get, whether it's like, share, subscribe, whether it's Patreon monthly commitment of whatever size whether it's a one-off donation, whether it's just buying a bit of merchandise, or whether it's just telling your friends. We appreciate every single bit, and thank you all for what you've done. The Labor government has finally got around to adjusting the Stage 3 tax cuts. It was bad policy that was implemented and legislated by the previous coalition government in 2019. It favoured high income earners too heavily and didn't offer much support for lower and middle income people. And it was the most unlikely policy that a Labor government could ever support. But they did support it, even if it was with a high degree of reluctance back in 2019. And Anthony Albanese, in opposition, did say that he would support it all the way through to the 2022 federal election. And up until about a week ago, as Prime Minister, he said that the Stage 3 tax cuts would proceed according to plan on the 1st of July this year. And with these adjustments, it means that almost 85% of wage earners will receive a bigger tax cut, and someone on a wage of $200,000 will still receive a tax cut of $4,500 instead of $9,000. And this seems like a most obvious change to make. So the real question is, why did it take them so long to reverse this bad policy? It's a difficult one to, to answer. I, I suspect that the Labor strategists who aren't always the most effective strategists. We've said that before and the evidence bears that out. But in this case, I think they were keeping the powder dry, waiting till they saw the whites of their eyes, holding fire, all of those inappropriate but somehow apt images 
to wait for a good time to announce it. Now, it's during January, which is a quiet time, so it wasn't going to be buried under something else. And I know that there was other things going on that we've discussed at length here in the world that Labor should be dealing much better with overseas. But domestically, all that was going on in January was the Australia Day controversy of Woolworths deciding not to stock Australia Day branded gear. And it was really any extra Australia Day gear. You could still buy an Australian flag at Woolworths if you wanted it. They just weren't putting extra in. The opposition tried to grab the narrative and control the government narrative by starting this. They failed because they announced the reform to the Stage 3 tax cuts, which spreads the tax cuts more evenly among income streams. So the top earners still get a tax cut, just not quite as much as it was originally. And we've seen some ridiculous arguments, some totally ridiculous arguments over why it's unfair to get $4,000 extra instead of $8,000 extra, particularly when people on lower tax brackets are actually getting a bit more money. Now, they're not getting four and $8,000 worth, but the mathematics doesn't work that way. And there were many economists calling for a change to stage three tax cuts from different perspectives, of course. Some were arguing that these would be inflationary and defeat the purposes of the tax cuts in the first place. But most were arguing that it was highly inequitable and would make the income tax system too regressive. And in the past, we've also argued that it is bad policy, highly regressive, it's too inequitable. But we also outline all the political reasons why the Labor government was unlikely to make any changes and also that they lacked the courage to make the changes and they didn't want to be dogged with that rhetoric about the broken promise and being untrustworthy with money, which would continue all the way up until the next election. But I am really surprised by this change. I just didn't think that the Labor government had the courage to do this. But when you think it all through, it's actually quite a simple and straightforward change. It's not actually that courageous. Why would you not give an extra tax cut to almost 85% of the electorate, especially to low and medium income earners, This is what a Labor government should be all about. This is the main reason why Labor governments are elected. It wasn't their policy, and it's not really a Labor type of policy. And maybe we were just all overthinking the process. It was a bad policy, and a good government removes bad policy and makes it better. And I think that's essentially what's happened here. It's the same amount of money, or approximately the same amount of money, which we said at the time was too expensive. The fact that it's spread out does make that a bit easier, that lower income earners, the people we've been saying we're missing out, are actually getting some relief. It's probably going to drive the change towards lowering interest rates because the extra money is there. That won't happen till later in the year, it seems, but they will not go up again for six months and then perhaps start to go down. Yeah, some of the ridiculous arguments. The Daily Telegraph found a couple who were on a combined $440,000 a year who struggled to explain why getting $4,000 less that they never had in the first place was going to be bad for them, 1% of their income. David Littleproud tried to argue that $190,000 wasn't that much to get a year, which is true if you're, I don't know, Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Taylor Swift or Eddie Djokovic. But for most people, $190,000 is two and even three times the annual household income. It's been funny watching Liberal Party and National Party, the philosophy of lower taxes, of less government, trying to argue that a tax cut 
is a bad thing. And watching them tie themselves in knots. And the mainstream media has been spoiling for a fight on this for some time. They had been deriding the Labor government for proceeding with the Stage 3 tax cuts. And now that they've announced that they will be changing this system, many journalists are now focusing on the broken promise angle. And we predicted this some time ago, David, that they were egging on the Labor government to change Stage 3 so that if they ever did, they would then harass them about their broken promises. And that's exactly what's happened. So if it's not one thing, it's something else. And instead of focusing on the merits of this policy change, they're now focusing on the narrative of the broken promise. And if they really want to see what an outright broken promise is, here's one from John Howard. No way that GST will ever be part of our policy. Never, ever. Never, ever. It's dead. And here's Tony Abbott just before the 2013 federal election. Uh, no cuts to education, no cuts to health, no change to pensions, no change to the GST and no cuts to the ABC or SBS. John Howard did introduce the GST. Tony Abbott went on to make cuts to education, cuts to health, cuts to pension, SBS and the ABC in the 2014 budget. And there wasn't too much noise about this in the media at the time. And admittedly, these broken promises were from some time ago. So the media might have forgotten about them or they might need some reminding. So maybe setting them up as ringtones on their mobile phones would do the job. And at the National Press Club address this week, when the Prime Minister detailed these changes and the reasons for making the changes, the journalists went absolutely feral. They put on their serious long faces, faces longer than a horse, swallowed their angry pills and fired away their most seriously pissed off questions. Prime Minister, can I take you up on this point about not adding to inflation? My question is, in a year's time or not long after, will you again look at tax brackets once the cost of living crisis is over and do something about bracket creep. Today your Treasurer said that it was over Christmas that it became apparent Stage 3 could be delivered in a better way. In early January, you tasked Treasury with looking into this. Do you accept that this was a lie and why should Australians trust that you won't lie to them again? So when you name those factors as reasons for this change, aren't you just looking for excuses here? Why didn't you level with voters at the election in May 2022? You said that you asked Treasury for advice this summer. Given families and many households have been feeling pain from those economic circumstances for more than a year, why have stage three, changing stage three tax cuts been off the table until this summer? You told Australians time and time again that there'd be no changes to the stage three tax cuts despite privately doing the exact opposite. So I ask you today, will you rule out bringing in a retiree's tax or any changes to negative gearing? Some Labor MPs are concerned about rebuilding trust now with the public following your decision. You promised to do politics differently, to bring integrity, honesty back to politics. Isn't it important, therefore, that you level with the Australian people today and admit that you breached an election commitment? Is that something you can do? And... Anthony Albanese was very polished in his responses. He was undeterred. He answered the questions very clearly, succinctly, and provided all the reasons for why he had decided that the Labor government should change stage three tax cuts. We're being very upfront with the Australian people that when economic circumstances have changed, it is the responsible thing to do to change our policy and we are changing our policy for the right reasons. 
because we can't have it that as Prime Minister of the country, as I travelled around during the summer, and uh, I do uh, much uh, uh, sometimes to the concern of uh, uh, some who, who have to look after me, uh, go to shopping centres, uh, walk through communities. Uh, I don't uh, have just controlled environments. I go out there and I talk with people. And when low and middle income earners are saying that they're under financial pressure, we have a responsibility to do something about it. Not just to wring our hands and to say, oh, well, that's, uh, that's difficult, but I can't do anything about it. As Prime Minister, I have a responsibility to act. And that is what uh, we are doing here. We are acting in a way in which we will provide assistance to people without adding to inflation, because that would be counterproductive. So the options before us, I accept. This is not an easy decision to make. The easy option is to kick the can down the road. This is the right decision, done for all the right reasons, and as Prime Minister, I will always do what I believe is in the national interest. And good government is about being responsive, is about doing what is necessary, not what is easy. And I want to be known as a Prime Minister who had the ticker to say what was needed and to set about doing it, even as uh, I recognise that this would be controversial. Even at a cost to your personal integrity then? No, well, my integrity, I'll tell you what my integrity is. Not looking at low and middle income earners and saying, sorry, I'm just the Prime Minister, I'm not in a position to help you, when I know that I am in a position to help you and that's what this plan does. And governments always do rehearse their lines. But Albanese's performance at the National Press Club suggests that they had been practising their lines for some time and probably had been planning to make these changes for some time as well. And maybe this is what they always intended to do. The original Stage 3 plan was anathema to the Labor Party and now they've got the political cover as well. There's the cost of living pressures in the community and that's what the media has been going on about for almost two years ever since Labor got into office so they can't turn around and now say oh hang on there is no cost of living issue after all and after it's been so embedded into the mind of the electorate so the broken promise angle is pretty much all the media has got now as has the Liberal Party and to me they're like little toddlers at a kid's birthday party you know you promised me an outdoor party and now it's raining you know breaking a promise when the circumstances change or breaking a promise and clearly articulating why you're doing it that's what adults do sport brats and immature people they focus on the broken promise they should be actually looking at the merits of this policy change and sure we can't expect that from the liberal party because they've got the political game that they have to play and they're too far gone anyway but we should be expecting much, much more from journalists in the mainstream media. But unfortunately, that's not going to happen either. We are let down every day by the mainstream media. Not everybody in it, but the general thrust of it is not good. And the ridiculous questions asked. Now, first point, 
And again, I'm going to reiterate, I still don't think it's great policy the way they've done it. I think I would have been a far more comprehensive broken promise when I got in and spread the money around more fairly and, and even did a wholesale reform of the tax system. But there's no point in arguing too much over what should have happened. Instead, we're arguing over what has happened. They are still bringing in the promised amount of tax cuts. They've just changed where they're going. And those who are getting them haven't lost out. If the top owners had been told, no, you're not getting any at all, I'd still probably agree. But I could at least say, yes, I could see why you'd be annoyed because you may have redone your finances in such a way that allows for X amount. Now you're getting zero. You're still getting fairly substantial amount of money. Although in percentage term, you probably won't notice it that much. And I know that a lot of our higher earning listeners agree with me. Not all of them. And hello to you people too. Welcome and enjoy. But stage three is done. Stage three is being delivered on time as per the legislation. Stage three is spending the the amount of money it's meant to spend. It's just that they've spread the largesse out a little bit. So it's not really a broken promise. It's not like the litany of Abbott promises, no cuts to the ABC or SBS, no cuts to healthcare and no cuts to education, which was, I think, the first bits of legislation he passed. It's not the GST under Howard. It's not the non-core promises. You had core promises and non-core promises. I'm guessing this was a non-core promise because they changed it slightly. It's dealing with an opposition whose only strategy is to oppose. And the genius of this is that they're now trying to oppose things that their own philosophy says that they must do tax cuts. How do you go out claiming you're the party of the working people and saying, oh, these tax cuts are wrong? Now, there are some working people who are going to say, yes, actually, you're right. We shouldn't be getting them. But from a labor point of view, which is supposedly, and I think I should have put supposedly in front of every piece of policy and philosophy to help the working class and lower income people, they've done that. And the electorate is probably smart enough to realize, hold on, There's one group of people who are acting relatively consistently to their core beliefs and another group of people who are tying themselves in knots to try and pretend that what's happening is not part of their core beliefs. Who am I going to vote for? Who will run the government better? Well, the Liberal Party now is pushing that narrative of the broken promise that could then lead to other changes such as negative gearing and franking credits. Here's the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, So I think the Prime Minister, after having promised it on 100 occasions, we now need to test his credibility in relation to negative gearing uh, and tax on the family home because the Prime Minister, interestingly, uh, and if you look at the Treasurer's words in relation to the question he was asked about negative gearing, he uses a very cute form of words as the Prime Minister did in Parliament, which I think gives rise to more questions than answers. I think there is a lot to to play out in relation to this debate and I think Australians have been staggered by the fact that their Prime Minister looked them in the eye uh, and bluntly lied to them. So this is going to be the narrative that Peter Dutton is going to keep pushing but there's just one big problem. If you're breaking a promise that results in 85% of wage earners getting more than they would have received under the Coalition, well I think most people would probably think that politically that's a good promise to break. And I don't think that too many people are going to say, well, you promised me nothing and you've broken that promise and you're going to give me a greater tax cut than you said you would. 
And I'm most unhappy about that. And now I'm going to vote you out at the next election. I don't think anyone's going to say that. And we do have to remember 100% of wage earners are getting a tax cut. And it's just that the people on the incomes of $200,000, for example, are going to receive a tax cut of $4,500 instead of $9,000. So that's still pretty good. So I just think that it's going to be a big ask for the coalition to campaign against this. And I'm sure that they'll try, but I just don't think that they'll be very successful with it. And just getting back to David Littleproud, where he did come out to say that a salary of $190,000 is not a lot. I've got people out in this, my electorate as well, tradies, uh, who have kids at school and mums at home looking after some of the kids, uh, and, and they're getting caught up in this. And they have, they, it's all it's all relative. Their, their mortgages are still up there, their cost of living is still there, and they're only on $180,000, $190,000, and that's still uh, not a lot in this day and age. I think that David Littleproud might be in a little bit of la-la land there. A salary of $190,000 is actually in the top 5% of incomes, so whichever way you look at it, if you're in the top 5% of income earners, just a bit of basic mathematics, you're earning more than 95% of the community. And just to simplify it even a little bit further so that David Littleproud can understand this, if you were in a room of 100 people, you and four other people would be earning more than 95 of the other people in that room. So a salary of $190,000, as you mentioned before, David, I'd be pretty happy with that. It makes me wonder how many people in his electorate he actually speaks to. And he may be in a fairly wealthy electorate, but again, it's not 5%. Plus, every electorate has homeless people. Every electorate has people who are on starvation levels and just about to be homeless and paying too much rent and paying. Again, I think there are reasons to oppose these tax cuts, but it's not oh, we were getting more, but now we're getting less when you're in the top 5% of people. And the other thing too is that the top rates don't come in till you're earning that money. So it's any amount over 190 that you get taxed at the top rate. It's any amount over 18,000. That first 18,000 is free and then you pay X amount till you get to the next level and then that next level. So you're not paying, people say, oh, I'm paying you know, 38% on my income, so now you're only paying 38% on the final bit of your income. And yes, I, and too, I know that uh, bracket creep is an issue that doesn't seem to have an obvious solution. And sh- sure, some of you have uh, suffered the ill effects of bracket creep. And that might be a problem that Jim Chalmers puts his head to next. And there's also speculation that this could be a big turning point for the Labor government and for the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. My feeling is that these amendments for Stage 3 will go through Parliament and the Australian Greens will eventually support this after they've received something of what they expect from the changes to the legislation. It's political suicide to stand in the way of tax cuts. And the Labor government and Anthony Albanese, they'll probably look back and think, well, what were we actually worried about? The media is a paper tiger. News Corporation is always going to rail against us, but that's what they always do. We thought that making these changes was going to result in serious problems for the Labor government. And look at this now. The sky hasn't fallen in. And this could be the point where the Labor government finally realises that, yes, we are the government and governments do have the power to make positive change according to their agenda. And there will be resistance to it from the usual suspects. But once they drink whatever is in that cup of courage, they will be more adventurous 
and start to look at other areas of inequality. Why not look at negative gearing and why not look at franking credits? And we've talked about this before, David. The Labor government just gives too much respect and too much credit to the mainstream media. And they also give too much credit to Peter Dutton. And we've also said this as well, that you should never underestimate an opposition leader. But if this does end up being an election year, they really have to put the foot down and ramp things up a bit. It's hard to know where Peter Dutton goes from here. The culture war failed. It ended up being an impetus for vandals to go and vandalise property. Not generally a traditional liberal philosophy. Woolworth's staff were abused in store and we saw Nazis flex their muscles in New South Wales. I'm pretty sure that a, a person who wants to be Prime Minister doesn't want this stuff happening in his name. You can't be Prime Minister without getting the centre. You may bolster your numbers on the left or the right, but without the centre, you've got no chance whatsoever. It's hard to know where he's going to go from here. It looks like he's cemented into spot. We both thought that he'd be gone by now, but it looks like that they're either going to send him to the next election or replace him just before the next election and try and do a Bob Hawke. Who they're going to do that with, I I don't know yet. I know that there's been high-level meetings done in, I can't say secrecy because I know about it, but in which the presumed topic of discussion was where do we go from here from very senior liberal figures but the liberal party has dug itself into a hole that i'm not sure it'll be able to get out of this is new politics with eddie Djokovic and david lewis one of australia's top 10 podcasts on australian politics and news commentary you can also find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can also support us through patreon and substack Up next, Scott Morrison to leave federal politics, and it's not a moment too soon. Prime Minister, when will you release the net zero modelling? Soon. Do you have a, Do you have an estimation then? Soon. When? Is that a few months? Uh, soon. But the time is now to start rolling all of that back. It's time for governments to step back and for Australians to take their lives back. We can't keep Australia under the doona. All having to deal with the unions uh, carrying on like this in the middle of the night to cause such terrible disruption. I'm not going to go into the specifics of that because I don't plan to give the Russian government a heads up about what's coming their way. But I can assure them, it's coming your way. This is a vibrant liberal democracy, Mr Speaker. Not far from here, such marches, even now, are being met with bullets. But not here in this country, Mr Speaker. Not here in this country. That is an absolutely liberal value, that you don't push some people down to lift some people up. And that is true about gender equality too. We want to see women rise, but we don't want to see women rise only on the basis of others doing worse. The the most likely uh, has been in a wildlife wet market, and uh, that's a good first step. It doesn't cover all the issues that I've been advocating, 
Uh, but uh, I'll continue to advocate for those. You guys always think, see things through a totally political lens. I don't. There has been an interception of a vessel en route to Australia. I've been here to stop this boat in order for me to be there to stop those that may come from here. The recent report of the Homes Royal Commission highlights the many unintended consequences of the Robodex scheme and the regrettable impact that the operations of the scheme had on individuals and their families. I do, however, completely reject the Commission's adverse findings in the published report regarding my own role as Minister for Social Services. I, I know Australians understand this and they'll be pleased I'm coming back, I'm sure, but um, they know that uh, you know, I, I don't hold a hose, mate, and I, I don't sit in yeah. the control room. The former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has announced that he's leaving politics and I think the only redeeming feature is that it just goes to show that absolutely anyone in Australia can make it to the highest office in the land and he does want to provide a valedictory speech in the first week of Parliament. Why he'd want to do this, we've got no idea. Bob Hawke didn't do one, nor did Malcolm Fraser, Paul Keating, John Howard, Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, Tony Abbott or Malcolm Turnbull. But just to provide a reminder of someone else's valedictory speech, here's the former Liberal Party Senator Conchetta Fierravanti-Wells providing her valedictory speech just before the last federal election. He is adept at running with the foxes and hunting with the hounds, lacking the moral compass and having no conscience. His actions conflict with his portrayal as a man of faith. He has used his so-called faith as a marketing advantage. By now, you might be getting the picture that Morrison is not interested in the rules-based order. It is his way or the highway, an autocrat, a bully who has no moral compass. In my public life, I have met ruthless people. Morrison tops the list. Morrison is not fit to be Prime Minister. We are meant to say nice things of people when they leave office, but there's just not much that we can say about Scott Morrison. He became the local member for Cook by destroying Michael Tauk's career, and he was the one pre-selected for the seat of Cook in 2007, only for Scott Morrison to launch a vicious and racist campaign against him. Scott Morrison was incompetent, he was ineffective, he was ideologically and religiously driven, he was secretive, he was politically corrupt and presided over a government where a lot of real and active corruption took place. We just don't need these sort of people in politics. He's already without power, sitting on the back bench and not doing very much. But I think that the day that he leaves politics will be a very, very, very good day. He took nice holiday photos. There you go. There's something nice. <laughs> Unfortunately, he was in them. I get asked a little bit, you know, in your opinion, who's the worst prime minister? Now, for those new listeners uh, or people who don't know, I, I did actually spend a fair bit of time in the university system and adult education teaching about the Australian prime minister and, and the role of the Australian prime minister and, and the personalities of the Australian prime ministers. And Traditionally, the worst prime minister was seen to be Sir William McMahon, who was prime minister from, what, 1971 to 1972. He was despised by his colleagues. He was weak and effectual, couldn't be trusted with the truth. But McMahon, even though he came in at the end of a very long period of liberal government, and so a lot of the good people had left, and it was a lot of people who were either at the end of their career or just starting their careers, still had good people in his cabinet. He also had a certain charm. Yet McMahon's colleagues were scathing about how terrible he was. Another 
contender who I keep seeing come through is John Howard because of the way he changes Australia. Howard was electorally successful, which kind of, in a sense, knocks him out of the worst. Plus, he did bring in at least one positive policy that was broadly accepted by most of the community, which is, of course, his uh, changes to the gun laws. Now, if there are any Howard supporters out there, you might bring in some other positive policies as well, and that's fine. I'm talking about the one that got fully partisan support. Tony Abbott is another one that comes up. (laughs) Abbott was chaotic, was incompetent, was corrupt, was all of those things, wasn't held in the level of contempt that McMahon was. And that leaves us with Scott Morrison. I won't go into people like Joseph Cook and Jim Scullin or John Gorton. Morrison was all of the worst characteristics of the three I've just mentioned, with none of their advantages. John Howard, and I've said this before and I get into trouble with it, but I have actually been in a room and seen this, was a brilliant public speaker. In a really odd kind of way, he shouldn't have been, but he was able to hold a hostile room and bring out his arguments. Bob Carr was the other one I saw, and just outstanding public speaking. Scott Morrison is not an outstanding public speaker. He, he spoke like a person who'd wandered into the wrong room and was trying to cover up his mistake that he's talking to the completely wrong group of people. Oh, but even still, I think even if you horribly disagree with a politician's or a prime minister's political beliefs and their agendas, you could argue that at least they were competent in, in some sense. And as far as their governance and being able to implement their agenda was concerned, the, I guess the other point is that a prime minister is only as good as their cabinet and the government that they lead. But in my opinion, Scott Morrison was the worst by far, and a lot of his behaviour is still unexplained and inexplicable. There's the secret ministries, there's all those secret deals, and a lot of this might come out through the National Anti-Corruption Commission. There's the installation of all the Pentecostal people within government and the public service. There's a whole lot of other issues. There's robo-debt. There's his propensity to lie, even when he didn't need to, lying to the French government, his absence during the bushfires in 2019, He was undiplomatic. There was the trade war that he instigated with China through his unwarranted belligerence. There was the PR and the slogans, the daggy dad. And everyone knew who was being referred to when the hashtag dickhead was trending on social media. Everything seemed to be motivated by political self-interest and his hatred of the Labor Party rather than the public interest. So Australia... didn't really dodge a bullet with Scott Morrison because he did become Prime Minister for over three years and caused a lot of damage during that time. But I think it would be fair to say that he was the worst Prime Minister and there's quite a bit of competition for this title. But I think we do have the winner now. I think, yeah, if Peter Dutton was to become Prime Minister, we might have another contender by the looks of things. But we can't judge that till it happens. You'd think that the Liberal Party in particular, but also Labor would have a look and say, you know, we don't want this happening again. How do we stop it? How do we nip it in the bud before another, well, dickhead gets to the top? And there's always been bad candidates, and occasionally they even get into outer cabinet and very occasionally into to cabinet. The Labor Speaker in World War Two ran a SP betting office from the Speaker's office on a Sunday, for example. Sounds a little bit like the prayer room. Yes, <laughs> pretty much. Yes, Sol Rosevi, the Labour Speaker during World War Two and uh, up to 1950, which, <laughs> you know, just incredibly inappropriate. And of course, 
you can all think of other examples from nearly all parties, except, let's be fair, so far, the Greens. And it's actually some of the minor parties. The Democrats, I don't think, had any openly corrupt members. The Greens haven't. And we've got to be fair in saying that these smaller parties have managed to remain pretty honest, even if you don't agree with them. It was really the blatant nature of the Morrison corruption too. Robo-debt, he was told many, many times that this was an illegal scheme and that you can't do it. And he did it. And then was shocked when it was knocked down by the Royal Commission and the Royal Commission found it was an illegal scheme. And yeah, again, it's not as if he'd had a sterling career and was corrupted by the process, like, say, Gladys Berejiklian in New South Wales. We knew his work for the various bodies suggested that this was not a person really suited to high-level management and they should have put a stop to it early. But he was able to provide things that the Liberal Party wanted, including the ability to win an election, but with a lot of media and business support. And Scott Morrison did announce that cliche of wanting to spend more time with family, and that's fair enough. The role of Prime Minister is quite a demanding job. The role of a Member of Parliament is a demanding job as well, or it should be anyway. Doesn't matter how bad someone might be at the job, it's still a very, very demanding job. But the role that he's supposedly going to take on is non-executive vice chairman of American Global Strategies. And this is unusual because the vice chairman position is usually a working executive position and the firm itself is a defence venture capital firm. And these types of firms do look to add former national leaders to their companies to give them stature and credibility But as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't really matter too much. They're a private firm. They can choose whoever they want. As long as Morrison cannot do any more damage to the Australian body politic and is out of Australian politics, I think that's essentially the good thing about this. I was struck by the non-executive vice president. Vice presidents generally have to be executive functions. They take over the chairing if the president's unavailable or step into the role of president. Uh, They're usually given particular divisions of the of the organisation to run non-executive directors, which is a legitimate legal structure, are generally people who might be figureheads or they might be brought in for certain projects, but they have no authority to drive, or they might just have put some money and want the the role without the responsibility. The role of the non-executive director is a, a valid role. The role of the vice president is a valid role, but it's like, I don't know, mixing your Coca-Cola with your cornflakes. Both might be useful and enjoyable, but together it seems very odd and you maybe should go and see a dietician. It does sound like he's negotiated a more prestigious title than perhaps he's deserved. Again, I don't know. And as you said, it's a private firm and they can hire who they want and call them whatever they want. I also wonder if it'll be like Tony Abbott and you'll be quietly let go. Oh, the contract's run out. Thank you for your service, Tony. See you back in Australia. Good luck with the speaking gig. And I wonder if in a couple months when they realise that even in a role that seems fairly useless, he can't reach that without incompetence and corruption and lying and et cetera, et cetera, and, and they let him go. But again, we will see. And I don't think it's by design, but Scott Morrison is leaving Australian politics at the time of an ABC documentary looking at the coalition in office during 2013 to 2022, and that's Nemesis, which is continuing next week. But from what we've seen this week, it's a catalogue of three failed Liberal Party prime ministers, and it was a 
trifecta of disasters in three different ways. It does seem to emit a lot of material, but I still think that it's a good record of nine years of poor government. And I'm still in a state of disbelief that the coalition government managed to go on for so long, but that's the story of Australian politics. And there will be a by-election in the seat of Cook, and the official resignation from Scott Morrison hasn't happened yet, so it might be a little bit of time before the by-election takes place. The Liberal Party is more than likely going to hold on to the seat. It was held by Scott Morrison by 12.4%, and governments rarely win a seat off the opposition. The Labor government did win the seat of Aston in 2023, but the last time before this happened, it was in 1921, so it doesn't actually happen that often. There is a by-election coming up in the seat of Dunkley, and that's as a result of the death of Labor member Peter Murphy last year. So that will provide us with a better electoral test between the Labor government and the Liberal Party, and that's going to be held in early March. But politics is becoming more and more unpredictable. But it will be interesting to see how this by-election and the by-election in Cook, whenever that's held, it's going to be interesting to see how all of this pans out. I think that the Dunkley will go to Labor. I know that the Liberal Party are campaigning hard and they're saying that it's time for a change. And look, of course, they're allowed to do that. And that's their job, to win seats. But I don't think it'll change. Peter Murphy was a deeply respected and, and loved local member. And so there may be a bit of a swing just for people who can't envisage not voting for her, for example. And sometimes that goes the other way too, that they want to preserve a legacy. So, But I think that will lean to Labor. I think too, you're right, that the Morrison seat will probably retain Liberal, still in safe seat territory. But has he damaged it enough that the good folks down in his seat might give it to a strong candidate. I know that Simon Earle down there has been making inroads for the last few elections. Again, whether Labor decides to run anyone in the seat is anybody's guess. But if they do, or if a strong independent goes in. But again, Labor has a good five-seat majority at the moment. So even if they lose Dunkley, it won't change much. And I don't think they will. I think we'll come out of these by-elections with two new members and we wish them all the best and hope that they can do the job as well as possible and all of that. But I don't think it'll change the numbers much. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.